Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Bill McNabb, the former chairman and CEO of Vanguard, the world's second largest mutual fund manager with over $7.5 trillion in assets under management. Bill now serves as a corporate director of United Health Group and IBM, in addition to serving on the boards of several other private companies and nonprofit entities. In 2021, Bill published a book, Talent Strategy Risk, How Investors and Boards Are Redefining TSR, with his co-authors Ram Sharam and Dennis Carey. In their book, they argue that since TSR, better known as total shareholder return, cannot keep the short and long-term in balance, boards should focus on a different kind of TSR, talent strategy and risk, because decisions and actions around these factors, more than any others, determine whether or not a company creates long-term value. Their book seeks to redefine the board's agenda and explains how to build and incentivize the right leadership team, help leaders take a longer view and communicate it to investors, refresh board composition and create diversity to meet the new challenges, keep major risks such as cyber attacks and sexual harassment allegations front and center, and analyze the business through the eyes of a shareholder activist. In this podcast, we talk about many of these issues, including Bill's thoughts on how to create a capable board, redesigning board committees, how to reduce information asymmetries between management and the board, and engaging with investors. We also address the rise of chief human resources officers, lessons from private equity boards and shareholder activists, the latest trend of delegation of voting power from large institutional investors to beneficial owners, and his take on ESG and the debate between shareholders and stakeholders more generally. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Bill, it is so good to have you in the Boardroom Governance podcast. This is the 78th episode, so I'm really happy that uh, we can talk to you about corporate governance. And particularly your latest book, which is an incredible book for anyone who is doing corporate governance, who is sitting on boards, Talent, Strategy, and Risk, How Investors and Boards Are Redefining TSR. So thank you very much. We'll we'll dig deep into the book and more, uh, but it's great to have you. Hey, it's great to be here, and congrats on 78 episodes. That's amazing. Uh, (laughs) It's fantastic to see that much interest in corporate governance. Yeah, who knew, right? Who knew? But let's start first with you, a little bit about your origin story. I always start with the origin story of the guest. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about where you're born, where you grew up, and from there, we'll take it all the way from from where you are now. Sure. So I was born um, outside Washington, D.C., while my father was doing his ROTC commitment at the Pentagon. And my family, uh, he went then back to law school. So I lived in New Haven for a couple of years. And then we went to Rochester, New York, which is where I grew up for most of my um, childhood and early teenage years. I ended up uh, at Dartmouth College thinking perhaps I was going to play basketball. (laughs) Um, Basketball coach thought otherwise. So I ended up joining the rowing team, which in in retrospect was a life-altering event, uh, became you know, part of a very high-performing team, and it was uh, just an amazing experience. And uh, 
much to, I think my mom's chagrin, I think my dad was good with it, but my, my mom was hoping I was going to be, you know, go to wall street and, and, uh, get into the finance world right away. I ended up, uh, after college, uh, coming to, uh, a private school outside Philadelphia where I was a first year Latin teacher and coached three sports. And, um, <laughs> Again, it's kind of a life-altering event for me. I ended up meeting my wife doing that, and uh, you know, we were we got married. I went back to grad school, spent a couple of years uh, in New York, and then got a very fortunate phone call from a, a friend of mine at at uh, grad school who was doing some corporate recruiting for this little startup company called Vanguard, and uh, I came down and interviewed with. Uh, I think I went through 25 interviews. Um, we only had a few hundred people and less than $20 billion under management at that point. But it was a, still a very rigorous process. And the founder, Jack Bogle, was the mm -hmm. final interview. And uh, we spent about an hour and a half together. And you know, he started out with a, a question. He looked at my resume and said, young fella, I don't know why you'd come here. Um, you're on wall street working with thousands of people, you know, I don't know how we're going to get to 25 billion under management. And he went on and on. I said, well, Mr. Bogle, you invited me to come interview. I think those were the last words I uttered. He, Jack is being Jack then launched into everything that was wrong on wall street, how he, his vision for what investment management could be and so forth. And I was captivated when I got home and my wife said, so how'd it go? I said, I have no idea. I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, what are you going to do? And I said, well, if, he, if they make me the offer, I'm going. Um, I said, this is going to be different. And so we moved back to Philly from uh, outside New York. And um, I was part of Vanguard for 32 years. And, it, you know, I, I like to say never really had a bad day. It was just a, an amazing, uh, you know, experience. I got to see every part of the company uh, during my career and had the privilege of being uh, CEO and board chair for the last 10 years of my career. Mm -hmm. And it was just, uh, I can't say enough about how fortunate I felt and how privileged, you know, what a privilege it was to actually, you know, work with an organization like Vanguard for as long as I did. You know, what's incredible about the story is that it, it sounds pretty much like a unicorn of those days, right? Like an OG unicorn. And, and now uh, to see Vanguard, I don't know how many trillion uh, dollars under management it has, but it ha it's probably the second largest uh, asset manager in the world. So it's, it's a pretty remarkable story. But tell us, tell us, for those who are listening, what made you go to Vanguard and what makes Vanguard so different in the asset manager category? So the biggest thing that appealed to me, so again, it goes right back to my my interviews with two people, um, Jack Bogle, who was our founder and first CEO, and Jack Brennan, who was then president and became our second CEO. And they each had, uh, you know, a couple things that really resonated with me in, in the very interview process. So one, Jack Bogle talked about our strat, our, our corporate structure. And in, in business school at the time, there was a sort of a classic... Um, structure follows strategy, which, you know, you, you have a strategy and then you design your structure accordingly. Jack flipped that around and said, strategy follows structure. And our structure was we were owned by our, the mutual funds and therefore the investors in the funds were essentially the owners of Vanguard. So we were truly a mutual, mutual fund company. And that whole idea of removing conflict. So most asset managers have 
two very important constituents they serve. They have their customer, and then they have their their owners, whether it's a private family or ship public shareholders. And you know, if you charge the customer more, the customer earns less, and but the shareholder does better. And for us, because the customer, our clients, were essentially the owners of the company. Our mission was to give them the best chance for investment success. So lowering their costs on a continuous basis really um, followed from that. So Jack's vision around that, more than even his belief in indexing as the ultimate expression of investment management uh, following that Mm -hmm. uh, path, it was brilliant. And um, mutual structures had existed, but not in investment management. They'd been in the insurance industry, in the savings and loan industry, farm cooperatives in Europe and so forth, but never applied to an investment management firm. And and that was really Jack's genius. Um, The second part of the equation was um, I I asked Jack Brennan, who was clearly the right hand at that point. And uh, although just a few years older than me, it was, you know, you could tell he was going to be the next CEO of Vanguard whenever that happened. And I said, so what do you, what do you, what's your vision here? He goes, I'm trying to attract people here who want the intellectual rigor of Wall Street with Midwestern values. And I, I, you know, having spent three years on Wall Street, I was, you know, oh, I found I found my place. Like, this is exactly what I was mm-hmm. looking for. So it was that combination of brilliant strategic differentiation, frankly, with this idea of we're going to be a very values-based, integrity-laden organization. And those two together um, really created a very special company, a very special culture. And again, it was for me just being part of that and getting to grow up in that was, you know, it was a remarkable uh, privilege and, and, you know, just so much fun. Yeah, no, that, that is very interesting. And of course, Vanguard is a huge player in corporate governance, not only because of what you just said, that its own governance is really interesting, but also the influence it has over the governance of public companies because of its long-term vision, because of its permanent capital, its its index uh, strategy. And, and we'll talk about that. But before we go into that, I'm also interested in your board career. So when you join your first board outside of Vanguard and, and now you, you've joined uh, many boards. So why don't you tell us about that part of your career as well? Sure. So, um, you know, while I was on the Vanguard board, the only other board I served on was a nonprofit was the Philadelphia Zoo, um, which I mm-hmm. stayed on that board for 16 years, just stepped away uh, this past summer. Um, again, a whole different story. They're a fantastic organization. But um, when I announced um, I was stepping away from a day-to-day CEO role, um, I stayed on it as chair of Vanguard for an extra year uh, while we worked our way through our transition planning. And I, that's when I did um, join my first corporate board, which was United Health. And I, I, I now serve on two public company boards, United Health and IBM. Um, so Fortune 50 companies, I guess. Mm-hmm. And whole, you know, great set of challenges and great set of uh, learnings there. And then I work with um, a private equity firm and a venture capital firm as kind of a senior advisor, uh, one very formal, the other a little less so. But I have ended up on a couple of their portfolio company boards as well. And that's given me this great um, opportunity to see the private markets at work Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, a couple of pure startups and then a couple of what I've called sort of small to mid cap companies. And then, of course, the two large public companies. So I feel like I'm seeing the entire, 
you know, scan or span of uh, capital structure. And um, again, the, the learnings from that have been really profound in terms of what's different, but also what's the same or, or similar. And again, maybe we'll get into some of that uh, during the questions, but uh, it really has, um, again, been very uh, enlightening for me as, you know, only having been involved in public company governance, if you will, to see the see some of the same principles applied in the private side and uh, how they play out. Yeah, and that takes us to your book because you, you do write quite a bit about uh, private equity boards, and, and that was really interesting. And, I, and I'll ask those questions, but but first, let me uh, just introduce this uh, book, Talent Strategy and Risk, and how investors and boards are redefining TSR which I think should be required reading for directors because you do a broad vision of what is the role of the board in the company and and you do it very specifically. And that's why I think this uh, conversation is so interesting. But first, what made you write this book? Well, I think there were um, three or four things that sort of came together, um, not all simultaneously. Some of it was, there was a sequence here. So you know, Vanguard was pretty early in thinking about governance differently. Uh, my predecessor, Jack Brennan, issued what really was the first letter from a major asset manager to uh, the marketplace. And, you know, he sent a letter, I think, to about 450 or so of our portfolio companies early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And, and it was really a reaction to the activists um, who were doing a lot of um, financial engineering at that point. That was really the main strategy where you'd come in and you'd spin divisions or you'd lever something up. And again, you might make really good returns in the short run, but our view is a permanent shareholder. And if you're an index fund investor, you are a permanent shareholder in in that company was maybe this isn't good for the long-term sustainable uh, value creation of that company. So Jack issued a a letter that kind of laid out broad principles. So that certainly triggered a lot of thinking inside of uh, Vanguard. Um, early in my tenure um, as CEO, um, coming out of the GFC, uh, it was clear that there were going to be some shifts in how uh, people thought about governance. Uh, Jamie Dimon pulled together a group that included Warren Buffett, myself, and a handful of other uh, major uh, investors and thinkers on the topic. And the so-called Buffett-Dimon principles uh, were issued I guess, somewhere around 2015, 2016, mm-hmm. uh, something like that, which led to the eventual business roundtable principles, um, which were a further revolution. Right. Those were like the, the good governance principles or, or something like that. I remember that. Yeah. And, and, and you know, we, we took some heat uh, because they were so broad and in a sense, a little bit of motherhood and apple pie. But, you know, our feeling was we needed to set a baseline and let people react and, you know, try to improve upon them. And again, I give Jamie a lot of credit for pulling the group together. And I give uh, Warren Buffett a lot of credit for just the wisdom that he provided during the discussions. And then really kind of simultaneous to that, there we were doing a lot of work with Drexel um, and their corporate governance center. Mm-hmm. And Raj Gupta, who was the former uh, chair and CEO of Roman Haas, and also a Vanguard board member, Raj had endowed the corporate governance center at uh, Drexel. And it was through Raj I met uh, Ram Sharan and, and Dennis Carey, who are the co-authors on the book. And, you know, again, they attended um, a couple of our early meetings at Drexel. And, 
you know, that's really where the idea of, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we collaborated together on the book? Mm-hmm. And I actually started work on this while I was still CEO at Vanguard. So it was before I had stepped away. Um, but it took us a long, you know, when you when, when you do something with three co-authors, whatever you think the time frame is going to be, triple it. Like, you know, we were, <laughs> we, you know, just to get the coordination. But it was a really fun project to work on uh, with uh, both Ram and Dennis. Because we each came at things from such a different view. As you know, Ram does a lot of advising. Uh, Dennis uh, has placed probably more people in boardrooms and done more CEO successions than anybody in the search business. And, it, you know, again, Vanguard, we had our own particular um, perspectives mm-hmm. on this. So the combination was really pretty powerful. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned early on the book is that as you join boards, you realized how important it was for directors to understand the investor base. And and, and that's interesting, right? It's, it's thinking about engagement. And why don't you tell us about that first reaction? Because obviously, shareholders come in very different shapes and colors, right? You got the permanent, the yeah. activist. Why don't you tell us that reaction? Because I think that's important for directors to understand that shareholders and investors have different timelines well you know it's really interesting um and and i'll come to the timeline part in a sec but you know when we first um started talking even before the book was out you know some of the work out of drexel about the need for more shareholder engagement with directors um the the response from some of the directors was why would we do that (laughs) and we're like well they kind of vote for you to be in your seat <laughs> and they own the company. Right. And it was this complete like um, skewed line example. Like no, there was no intersection of thought there. <laughs> and we had to really push this concept. Um, and the only time there was really engagement uh, with directors and boards were really two issues, an activist campaign mm-hmm. or say on pay. Um, and that was it. And our view was there needed to be much more of a bilateral dialogue between, you know, independent directors and investors. And some of this was born, you know, really, uh, you know, the activist movement certainly had picked up a, a, a lot. And, and again, I think activists play a very important role in the economy. So this is, uh, I never want to be disparaging of how those folks invest. There's a whole range, as you know, some people are more short-term oriented, some people are more long-term oriented. But the one thing that they collectively do as a group is they bring great focus to particular issues within uh, many companies. And sometimes their um, their response to those issues, we might differ on how to respond, but they often have their finger on something. And so, you know, that group has, you know, certainly grown in influence. But I think the more profound change is actually the fact that for uh, in in the U.S., twenty to twenty five percent of your shareholder base today is through passive investors, so called passive investors. You know, index funds of one flavor or another. And in some cases, it's even bigger than that. Uh, but let's say twenty five percent on average, mm-hmm. and you know that is to your earlier point, permanent capital. As long as the company remains in the broad benchmark, it is the index fund has no choice; they are going to own you. And unlike an activist or a traditional active manager, index funds don't have the teams and the investment staffs to go deep on an individual company basis in terms of strategy. But what they can really go deep in is how that company is being governed. 
and our boards spending the right time on the right issues for long-term value creation. And that's really what drove the book in a lot of ways was this whole concept of there's this big group of people out there who are very interested in long-term value creation. And it's really important for boards to recognize that's a, that's a very different phenomenon than we had 20 years ago where you know index shareholders were less than 10% of uh, every major company. It, it, and it has really changed the dynamic, if you will, uh, in terms of governance. And I think the the balance between short-term and long-term thinking. Yeah, and I should add that that's a big theme within corporate governance. If you look even in terms of decades, right, where maybe 50 years ago, most of the shareholders were retail investors, and then it just switched into institutional. And and now some large asset owners like BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, and others own a big part. And and whenever they write these letters, uh, and as you said, they vote 25% or 20% of the Fortune 500 or more, uh, that weighs a lot, right? So there has been a little bit of a pushback as well now, right? And yeah. we'll yeah. talk about some of these funds are doing. But one of the things that caught my eye in your book is that at some point you wrote that some of the best-run public companies operate with a private company mindset. And I thought that was really interesting coming from you. Why don't you elaborate a little bit more about that idea? Yeah, so there's a story behind that, um, you know, what got me really thinking about this more deeply. So early when we were doing some research on, for the book, one of the things we did through Drexel, actually, is we pulled together a group of shareholders for a dinner, or, or uh, not shareholders, um, directors, I should say. Um, and many of the directors had um, both public and private company experience. And we sort of went around the table and had people talk about the differences and so forth. And you know, I'm taking copious notes. And we got to one guy and he says, look, I've served on eight public boards and seven um, private boards. And he goes, let me boil this all down for you. On the private company board, we think long term. And But if we need to make a change, you know, we don't have a CEO who's performing well or an executive a member of the executive team. We change that person in a day. On my public company boards, we live quarter to quarter but if we see something we really don't like, CEO, for example, who's not mm -hmm. performing well, it takes us a couple of years to figure out what to do. <laughs> and as a big, large public company shareholder, you can imagine, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like the opposite of what you want to hear, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we began to really spend more time talking to people about that. And, and what, you, you know, what you find is, and, and I've had the privilege of being in a lot of public company boards, both as a, not just a member, but also as a guest. Um, you know, talk about governance, talk about um, uh, some of our thinking. And you get a chance to sort of listen to what's going on as a result of that. And what I, what I have seen is in, in the, best, the best boards I've been in, there's this incredible balance between it's not short term versus long term. It's long term and short term because the long term is made up of a lot of short term. So it's Yes, you've got to perform to get to your long-term aspirations, but there's a real linkage between the two. And the second thing is, and so they're thinking long-term, but they're, they understand that they've got to deliver results to get you there. Um, so that's, you know, been really interesting. And that's very similar to what you would hear in a private equity-backed firm, you know, so-called value creation plan, which is mm -hmm. often laid out exactly that way. The second thing that's really interesting is the shareholders in the room. So in, in most private investments, the board is primarily investors. And mm -hmm. you may have an operator, a couple of independent directors, which is great. That's really best practices there. 
but you'll always have major investors on the board. So when somebody says, well, is the investor in the room? Sure as heck, you know, like they are there. And, um, what I, what I hear in, in, again, what I think are some really well-governed companies now is they want to know how will a shareholder react to this particular thing we're thinking about or that particular thing. It's been interesting for me because that's often, you know, I'm often asked to opine on that. Like, and you know, I don't, I'm not going to get it right all the time. And I certainly don't think like every active, um, investor or every activist investor, but you know, if you've seen enough over time, you can at least, you know, give some perspective as to what you think might happen. And they're really keenly aware. Like, so I feel like the investor is in the room uh, in these best uh, case situations. And that's really, you know, along with this shift to a, a, a longer term focus as something that's really important. It's been really fun to see that um, uh, evolve. And it's not universal, but it's mm-hmm. definitely in many of the better governed companies that you see. And again, one of the things I should have said right up front, all of this work, there's no there's no data yet or evidence that says, quote unquote, good governance leads to better long-term returns. Mm-hmm. First of all, what it, it's, it's, you know, it's a qualitative assessment, right? But it feels to me like they're, you know, certainly anecdotally I've seen it, but I can't prove it from a, mm-hmm. a you know, a statistically valid, mm-hmm. you know, number of examples. I, I, I you know, I, I, I'd be the first to say that. But the flip side is I see no downside to being well-governed in terms of underperforming. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you now, know, to me, it, it feels like not only the right thing to do, but it also will lead to better results. But I can't prove that. You know, that, that phrase also reminded me, and, and, and this is more controversial in the governance world, of Google's uh, IPO and the and the IPO, the, the letter of the founders was, we believe that the best way to keep our uh, governance like a private company with a private mindset is to have dual class share structures. And in the tech uh, industry where I live in, you know, I'm, I'm in San Francisco, this has become very common among tech companies and the largest institutional investors have really pushed back. I mean, there's, there, there used to be a very strong feeling that one share, one vote, and, you know, you should be accountable. But then the tech industry starting in 2005 uh, had these dual class share structures uh, maybe 10 years later, the Council of Institutional Investors said, okay, we understand that you want to keep your vision, but uh, we believe you have to have like a sunset provision for maybe seven years, and then you should flip into one share, one vote. What are your thoughts on this? And how have you seen this evolution? Because obviously, you yeah. went from very much one share, one vote to dual clause shares, and now a little bit of a pushback. Yeah. So, you know, at a high level, I do believe in one share, one vote. Um I do think there are circumstances, and it's actually exactly as you described, where um, dual class, I can rationalize it, um, but it's only for a period of time. What inevitably happens is if if it stays forever, you know, the, the, the vision of the founders gets diluted so greatly as you go down to second, third, fourth generations. You can end up with families that have no connection to the business at all. Right basically controlling the vote. And to me, that is not going to lead to better long-term value creation for um, your, your other shareholders. It's just not. And so um, the, you know, what, what the institutional investor group proposed, I don't know whether seven years is right. I think it's actually, there, there's some range in there um, and it probably should be viewed dynamically. 
what I want to hear from the directors of a company that does have dual class, I want to hear, okay, show us the value, why this is important. And, you know, there, you know, somebody like Google could show you capital allocations that probably wouldn't have passed the test for if they had been broadly public, you know, um, Comcast here in Philadelphia, great example. You know, they, they would say, and I'm putting words in their mouth, which I shouldn't do, but my guess is they would say, look, we've done these several acquisitions. If we were, if, if we didn't have that ability to sort of control the vote, this never would have happened. Um, and some activists would have come in and made us think more short term. I get it. Um, you know, I, I, you know, cause, because Vanguard was private, um, in our weird way of, you know, even though we were owned by all the investors, we made a lot of decisions that were very long-term oriented that would have, if we were a public company would have been more difficult for a broad-based public shareholder, uh, group to accept that said, you know, making the, these dual class things permanent, I think is, is a mistake. And, you know, you may find the one or two examples where multi-generations have been able to handle it, but then you're going to find the other 98 out of 100 haven't. And so, you know, finding that right balance, I think, is really important. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Okay, so so why don't you tell us about the new TSR? What do you mean by talent and strategy and risk in the order that you have it? And what's the premise? What's the takeaway for people who have not read your book? Yeah, so um, it's pretty straightforward. So, you know, talent, strategy, risk are the three broad categories and then linking them to execution, how a board should spend its time. And again, if I go back 25 years and talk to a lot of board members from that era, what's the main thing you spent your time on? It was CEO succession, like pick the right CEO and get out of his or her way and let them run the company. Um, CEO CEO selection is still a very important role of the board. No question about it. Arguably the most important decision you make. However, under you know, with the complexity and speed with which change is introduced to so many companies today, understanding the company's broad approach to talent and how that talent impacts the creation of culture, we think is really important. And so boards need to have a really good set of tools and spend the time getting to know talent more broadly, and also, um, you know how that re- how the culture reflects that talent. And again, as you know, so many um, corporate failures were less about strategy and more about execution or a reputational damage, which was usually done through the uh, through the people side. And, you know, I would argue those boards didn't necessarily have their hands around the talent and culture the way they needed to. Now, again, you can put a lot of time and energy into this and and you're never going to get it all right. But the more time you spend, we think, again, it's, it's a really talent is what really separates, you know, great performers from so-so performers. Um, I, again, just said maybe the best example I can give at a practical level. So Vanguard, when I was um, still board chair, we had 15,000 people. Mm-hmm. We took our board through our top thousand people, not, you know, name by name by name, but, you know, we'd look at that thousand, we'd look at their characteristics, we'd look at who was moving, we'd look at the demographic profiles, we'd, we, the board would ask great questions about how do you identify, you know, the cream of that group, which is already the cream. Um, 
And that dialogue actually, to me, produced a much broader, deeper understanding by the board of how we were approaching talent and culture. You know, strategy to me, um, again, if you go back 20 years and even my early days on, you know, attending Vanguard board meetings, you know, you do a strategy retreat every couple of years with your board. You'd spend two days and you'd get some outside in perspective and you'd all do SWATs and you'd come up with a few big ideas and then you'd write out your five-year strategic plan and you'd present that back to the board. Is this what we talked about? Again, useful exercise in that era, but what happens when a pandemic strikes? Like everything you just assumed is gone. What happens when the GFC occurs? Everything mm-hmm. you planned on is gone. You know, Russia invading Ukraine. You know, if you're a European company, your 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 energy is um, completely disrupted. The pandemic, obviously, we saw that on supply chain. So everything falls apart. So to me, strategy, it's great to have long-term aspirations about what you're trying to achieve, but this is one of the things I think we've learned from Silicon Valley in particular is being agile around strategy is really important. And so even in relatively mature industries, the rate of change is so much faster today than it used to be. And so our our view, you know, my co-authors and I, our view, and this is again, after just synthesizing lots of interviews with, you know, directors and investors and CEOs was, Strategy should be an always on topic and you want to be in a sense, constantly asking yourselves as a board, do we have it right? And if something's not working, is it just a tactical execution thing or is there a set of assumptions around our strategy that maybe needs to change because the exogenous factors out there have changed and it's that dialogue. Um, So again, in, you know, one of my boards, there are no PowerPoint presentations. When the businesses come in, you know, we've done the background reading and they are always talking about a strategic theme, a vision that they're trying to get to, what's getting in the way, what's working, what's not working. And we're probing and, and, and pressing for more clarity and so forth. And that dialogue, you end up with, you, you know, if I'm a management, if I'm on the management team, I go back and go, wow, I just heard from some really smart people questions I never thought about. I'm going to go get the answers to these questions. And it's that dialogue that ends up being really valuable to both the management team. But, you know, from the board's perspective, you're doing your job, making sure that the company is thinking about these big issues appropriately. And when it comes time to allocate capital, which, again, boards have a huge impact on, the capital is getting allocated appropriately. Um, you know, again, a simple example, you know, I, I remember talking to a, a friend of mine who was a member of a board of company you would know, and they're talking about their big strategic thrust. And then you, 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 I said, so, you know, you guys just did a, a massive amount of, you, you know, you raised a lot of money in the debt markets to go um, out and, you know, to go buy somebody it has nothing to do with what you just said strategically. You know, it's like, there's a misallocation here, you know, here's the big idea, but here's where we're spending all our capital. Didn't make any sense. Um, so to me, that's, you know, again, a, a very robust part, you know, risk, um, you know, I, I think is the conclusion we had, um, in the book risk is certainly pretty developed in a lot of boards, risk, man, you know, risk oversight. Um, but I think, um, there were sort of two things, at least for me that really jumped out during our, our homework. One was, um, the whole idea of reputation risk is much bigger and 
um, hairier than it ever has been. And how are you thinking about that? And um, that that leads to a whole set of questions. Um, and then the other thing is, in many boards, um, audit and audit and risk are combined. Um, and so you may have an audit and risk committee, or if you're a financial institution, maybe you have a separate risk committee. And again, I think that's great. You know, there's a lot of work that can be done in committee, but the best boards actually make sure that the big hairy risks that companies that that their particular company faces gets broad board exposure as well, because it's sometimes it's the it's the question out of the blue from a board member who's maybe not as deep on that particular area as a committee member that actually opens everyone's eyes. Um, like, oh, you know, where did that come from? Uh, and again, maybe a practical example would be helpful. Um, you know, one of our board, one of the boards I serve on, um, you know, I'm chair of the risk committee or the audit committee, I should say, and mm-hmm. we do cyber twice a year. We end up talking about cyber almost every meeting at, at some level, but we bring cyber to the whole board for an in-depth board discussion once a year, um, just because we think it's that important um, for this particular organization. And um, again, what's really interesting is some of the non-committee members ask unbelievably great questions because they're coming at it from a slightly different perspective. And it's that combination of deep sort of, you know, understanding that the committee members may have with these, you know, um, completely different perspectives that um, the other board members have that leads to better uh, oversight. Again, it's not perfect. Um, You're still going to have stuff come up and get you that you didn't expect. But you reduce the risk. You, you reduce the risk, if you will, mm-hmm. of some, you know, um, unforeseen risk rising up that you haven't even thought about. Yeah, and obviously, all these elements are are really in depth in the book. And one part that I think that would be good for people who serve on boards or want to be on boards is is your chapter or section on creating a capable board. So let's talk about board composition, for example. You talk about uh, evaluations, and, and you have a good take on evaluations where it used to be, you know, just symbolic. And, and so that's one thing. And, and also the distinction between insiders versus outsiders in the board and uh, digital expertise. You mentioned cybersecurity, which has become a huge issue. But you also say, for example, that you want to have at least one director with money-making expertise, and also a couple of directors who have been CEOs, which is really interesting. So why don't we talk about board composition in those terms that it's more the nitty-gritty of how to build a board and and think about composition. Of course, there's a lot of talk about diversity, but I think you make a very specific target of having specific expertise on the board. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, diversity of experience, diversity by um, other more traditional diversity dimensions is important because, again, those different perspectives help. But you 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 have to combine that with um, certain expertise that you want. So, again, the, the let me start with the easiest one in some ways. Having a couple of former CEOs on the board is really valuable, in particular when you are trying to balance what's really a big deal versus what's like a, okay, this, we wish this had gone better, but let's get over it and move on to the next issue. And it's really interesting. People who've walked in those shoes just are more helpful on those topics. Um, and I, I don't know any other way to describe it, but I, I've seen the, the difference. Um, you know, I've experienced the difference. It, it's, 
yeah, that's important, but let's not lose as much sleep over that is over here. This is really the bigger deal. And again, and by the way, you you do mention former CEOs and not current CEOs because of the time yeah. commitment that that requires, right? Yeah, and, and and again, you know, I think having a sitting CEO, if you if the sitting CEO is allowed one board, is great um, because that actually gives your CEO somebody to go to for particular advice especially if you've got a new CEO with a more veteran CEO. But former CEOs work as well. But I think having a board of all C- former CEOs, and that used to be the way a lot of Fortune 100 mm-hmm. companies were um, constructed their boards, I don't think that's all that valuable either because you know having some domain expertise on the particular area. So let me I'm going to use um, United Health as an example. We have two world-class physicians on our board the former head of the Mayo Clinic and the current head of Morehouse School of Medicine. Now, they they can ask questions about what we're doing from a clinical perspective, a patient care perspective, a safety perspective that none of us have mm-hmm. any direct experience. It's unbelievable. I sit there, I'm in awe of what they know. They also, by the way, though, that's not their only that's not their only value to the board. They're both great leaders and they both know how to run businesses and so they bring other skills and this is, you know, one of the things I wish maybe we had done a slightly better job in the book on. Um, so we'll watch for this in version two. You okay. gotta, it, you gotta push back on the oversiloization of expertise. And we do talk about it, but I think we could have been even more explicit. So cyber is a great example. Everybody wants a cyber expert on their board, but if all that person knows is cyber, mm-hmm. then ninety, the, the other ninety percent of the board meeting is not going to be fun. And frankly, they're not going to add as much value. So what you really want to find is somebody who's deep on cyber, but who also can be very helpful on the broader uh, landscape. So, um, and again, I I serve on another board where we've got one of the world's leading experts on cyber from a policy standpoint, but I can't think of anybody who's better on people, leadership, development, um, culture, the whole talent question as well. And pretty good on broader technology issues besides cyber. So, again, brings a, a lot more than just that particular expertise. Um, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, when I'm helping out on boards, um, yeah, obviously my capital markets background and, you know, thinking like an investor is certainly an appeal. But I also had to run a pretty big, complicated organization. So you have that mm-hmm. operator experience as well. So. Again, I think a lot of what we were trying to get to on that side was think about those areas of expertise, but don't over-index to them to the exclusion of having you know broad general capabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one other really important thing um, that your question you know kind of gets at though, uh, which I which I, I think is um, something that was a little more controversial when we first talked about. It. Now people seem to accept it. I think having some domain expertise in the particular business area. So, um, and I know that sounds really obvious, but go take a look at a lot of boards and what sector they're in. You may not find anybody other than the CEO who actually is a deep expert on that sector. And, you know, I I think that's actually a mistake. Um, You know, I think having, you know, your biggest revenue, if you take any company and you look at where the revenue comes from, having a couple other people who actually understand that is actually really helpful. So again, not to, you know, not to over um, pat ourselves on the back at Vanguard, but 
I had two always, and again, before me, so Jack Bolo started this um, to his great credit. So when, uh, let's go back when Jack was uh, chairman and CEO of Vanguard. He had Burton Malkiel, the great Princeton mm. economist who also wrote arguably the most important book about investment management ever written, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And then he um, also had Charlie Ellis, who founded Greenwich Research, which again was an, a deep investment background. And so he had two of the country's leading investment thinkers and writers on our board. Now, was Burke going to be as good at cyber or technology as you know some of our <laughs> other board members? Probably not. But he had great, I mean, the depth he had on investment management. We, our, inve our investment teams could not get away with anything in, the, in those boardrooms, right? It was really <laughs> powerful. And so I think about the same thing, you know, it's at, you know, at United, we have these two docs who, I mean, they know the business inside and out, um, you know, the clinical side. It's fantastic for us. You know, we had somebody retire from our board that will, you know, we'll have to replace her expertise at some point, but she had run CMS. So the whole government side, um, which again, is a big part of our revenue stream. So again, that, that kind of domain expertise is is important you don't want to over index to it but mm -hmm. having somebody who sort of can keep a check and balance on the because the, one of the things we talk a lot about is asymmetry of information and having you know a couple people on the board who can help you overcome that is not a bad thing that reminds me a little bit, Warren Buffett has written for years about that in his shareholder letters about what the board needs in terms of expertise. And he always says like business fundamentals, right? So you got to go back to basics and understanding the business in which they, they operate uh, seems pretty natural. Another big part of your book, I think, is proposing or redesigning boards committees. And I thought that was very different to current practices. And you have a talent compensation and execution committee and a strategy and risk committee separate. Why don't you talk a little bit how that came about? Yeah, you know, this was again, so, you know, it's funny, it was, it was talking to people like Warren and others who are really engaged um, in these. Yeah. And, and, and what I would say about the recommendations on the committee side, th these were meant to be provocative. They're not meant to be perfect for every company. Mm -hmm. um, but increasingly, you do see talent. You see comp committees actually evolving into much broader talent committees. And then, you know, there was an, a, a couple of um, really good investors poked and prodded at that a little. So that's great. But, you know, at the end of the day, compensation should be linked to execution as well. So do you want to put that in? Um, And I would say actually execution is the whole board's responsibility, um, but having a committee that's looking at the linkage between talent, comp, and execution is not a bad thing. So, you know, that's one where you could certainly design the committee that way. If you stopped at just talent and comp and said the whole board's going to handle execution, I'm fine with that too. You know, this was, again, meant to just get the idea out there about the linkages. Same thing with strategy and risk. You know, everybody goes to risk. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about eliminating risk. It's about what's your true risk appetite in order to achieve your strategic goals. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen many people, by the way, take us up on that strategy risk concept and marrying them together from a committee standpoint, including the boards I'm on. Um, because, again, strategy tends to be done as a committee of the whole. Um, but um, I do think there's, again, some room for much better linkage between 
what do you, you know, how much risk are you willing to take? So again, we, we tend to think of risk and risk mitigation. There's this also this huge risk appetite question, which is really part of strategy. I think boards need to actually be a little more conscious about that as they're thinking about things. Um, because otherwise your strategy is not going to be bold enough and you're not going to really be pushing the management team to, to think long-term enough or broadly enough about where they could go strategically. So again, the idea behind linking those in a committee was if you have some people going deep on this, it'll force the question. Yeah, that it's very interesting. And thinking about where certain items fit, right? Like where does cybersecurity fit? Where does ESG fit and other things? One of the things, by the way, that I took away from your book is the importance of chief human resource officers. I didn't realize that now, you know, CEOs rely so much on CFOs and this officer, but that shows how talent is very, very important. Yeah, it's a great observation. Um, and, and it's interesting in all the discussions we've had about the book, only a couple of people have actually picked up on that. <clears throat> so there's a story. You know, I went to what we euphemistically called at Vanguard CEO Kindergarten. Um, <laughs> Mike Porter at, at Harvard runs this session for newly minted CEOs. And uh, I had the privilege of going. And it was interesting in a poll of our class, um, you know, what's the first talent thing you're going to do? I think 80% was, I'm going to change out my um, CFO. Um, I went back for like my fifth year anniversary. So, you know, I was in entering middle school, I guess, at that point. And, you know, we got to sit back and watch the class. And the same question came up and 80% said HR. Um, they, they, and, and when, when the question from Mike was, well, why are you doing that? I need somebody who I trust implicitly to get talent right and get the culture that I want right. It was a fantastic pivot. So, you know, part of what we reflected in the book was, you know, that experience. And again, as we press the issue with, you know, investors and, and uh, other um, board members, they, it, you know, you, you could see the eyes light up and yeah, yeah, you know, this has become a much bigger deal. And, you know, for me, it's actually changed the nature of HR too. HR is a much more strategic function, mm. not an administrative function. And um, again, I had, you know, this is where you, it's better to be lucky than smart. My, my predecessor, Jack Brennan, saw this very early. The head of HR with whom I served on the executive committee, uh, you know, our senior staff group um, was amazing. She was so plugged into the business and she remained as my head of HR until like the last couple of years when, when she retired and her knowledge of the business and our strategy and where we were headed made her way more effective. She had plenty of people who could make sure that our comp programs functioned correctly and that our benefits were world-class and, you know, all the facilities and all that stuff worked, but her, her ability to link, our strategic objectives to the kind of talent we needed led us to do some things very early, you know, before a lot of other people were doing it uh, in terms of uh, talent. And so it's, it's always, and, and again, I give Jack Brennan all the credit in the world because he was the one who saw that first, um, at least in my experience. Um, so it was, it was very helpful, but now we're seeing a lot of organizations talk about it the same way. 
Yeah, no, that for sure uh, caught my attention there. The other thing that you write about, which which is also interesting, is is the reduction of asymmetry of information between the board and management, because that's such an important topic uh, where traditionally you had CEOs who kind of manage the clock or give them the information that they want, and and there are and, and you describe many ways in which directors should take the leadership there, and you describe, for example, that the golden standard there is Mary Barra at at GM and and how she manages her board. I thought that was really interesting. It reminds me that there's a paper out there from David Larker at the Stanford Business School, and he talks about the Netflix uh, board and how they innovated in terms of the information gap that he calls on how the directors know or learn about the company. But that topic seems to be a quintessential topic on governance. Yeah. And, and look, you know, it's really hard because, you know, management lives and breathes this stuff 24-7 and, you know, you're together as a board just periodically and you may have another day job or you may have other responsibilities. Um, so I think the need to be creative is um, important. Um, this is where having a couple of domain experts on your board is helpful because, you know, they at least can open some doors and give you some ideas to pursue as other board members. But, you know, Again, a number of the boards I'm on are really big on bringing in outside experts, on a, not, not just once a year or twice a year, every meeting somebody new is coming in. So, you know, you might bring in a sell side analyst who doesn't love you, um, who loves one of your competitors. That is like, you know, we did this at Vanguard. We brought in, actually, she was a buy side analyst who her favorite stock in the whole world was BlackRock. And um <laughs> You can imagine how I feel listening to how great BlackRock is. And, and by the way, I have a lot of respect for BlackRock. They're you know, a very successful firm. And our board's eyes are popping out of their head. And I'm like, going, oh, my, you know, I'm like, am I going to last the, the meeting here? <laughs> because, you know, all the brilliant things BlackRock was doing that we weren't. But it was unbelievable for our board to hear that. Um, and we would bring somebody in from the sell side to talk about it you know, bring a cyber expert in. Um, I was just in a meeting, one of, our, one of our boards had a meeting. We brought in a guy from London, former MI6, now does geopolitical um, consulting mm. to talk about what's going on in the Ukraine, what's talking, what's going on in China. And very importantly, because he's European, what do you think's going on in the US? Mm. And again, for us as a board, it was unbelievable. It was like, I could have, I could have listened to this guy speak for a day. Um, mm -hmm. I had so many questions and, and, and the linkage to what we're trying to do. Um, so it's, it's that constant idea, um, you know, venture capitalists, um, you know, United, we brought in a venture capitalist and here's United. I mean, we're talking about a, you know, $500 billion market cap company with 350,000 employees and we bring in a VC to talk about early stage healthcare investing. You, you could say, well, what are you trying? But like, who's going to do something that may cause us to be disrupted down the road? It was phenomenal. It was a fantastic session. This particular VC did such a great job. I mean, I, I walked out of there like this, you know, I was nervous. <laughs> I was like, I know we're successful, but you know, what if one of these six things comes true? Like, how will we respond? And, you know, and, and our chair, that's exactly what he wanted the rest of the board to feel. Well, that's great. That was like Andy Grove's uh, Only the Paranoid Survive. It, it, it is. It, and, you know, so a lot of this, so you, you never completely cure the asymmetry, but the more creative you are, um, you know, one board I know brought in one of the top activists and said, if you were going to come after us, what would you do? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you talk about a bold move, right? Uh, I mean, that's mm -hmm. a brave move. But it got the board thinking really, like, if the activists can see it, why can't I as a board member understand that? Why did I miss that? And mm -hmm. it makes you go back and think about how you're spending your time, what kinds of sources of information. So, again, you know, we had a lot of ideas um, in that side. I would say this is an area where, you know, uh, again, the, the article you cited earlier about, you know, what Netflix does. Um, Microsoft actually does a um, pretty good job on some of this stuff from what I'm told. The, just getting these best practices out there and shared um, is really important. Yeah, it certainly is. And, you know, going back to the first thing we talked about, which is the growing influence of large institutional investors, there's been a bit of a pushback as of late, right? And, and BlackRock and Vanguard and others have received a lot of pressure lately. So much so that maybe now BlackRock and Vanguard have announced that they may pass through some of the voting power to beneficial owners. And they call this a new era of shareholder democracy. And I wanted to get your sense of, you know, what is this about? Is this a good trend? Is this bad? And maybe we'll finish up with ESG. I know you have specific thoughts on that because you, you, you have a full chapter on ESG, but we'll talk about ESG after we talk about this delegation of voting power. Yeah, so the delegation of voting power, you know, it's like anything else. There, There's good and bad to it. Um, you know, the good would be if you're BlackRock and you got a bunch of sovereign wealth funds and large pension funds who have staffs who can do this um, in, a, in a thoughtful way. No problem. Actually, they are the, own, the ultimate owner. I, I don't see any issue with it at all from uh, either a theoretical perspective nor a practical application. You start talking about it with individual investors, and that's been some of the proposals. Uh, you know, 98%, 99.9% of the vote. I mean, there's thousands of things to vote on. And so what's going to end up happening if that goes, if, if something like that were to become common, the proxy advisors are basically mm -hmm. going to be the ones who determine how this is all done. And I would tell you, I don't think they do that great a job. I know that's controversial, but I'm... Um, I, I think the the vanguards, the Black Rocks, the State Streets, the Fidelities, the T Rowe prices, the cap researchers have way better um, staffs and, and and better approaches, and I'd much prefer to see them voting on these issues than either the proxy advisors or retail shareholders broadly. Um, you know, there are a handful of retail shareholders who will take it seriously and they'll do a really good job, but for the most part, it's like a, it's really a painful process to go through. And in a sense, that's why retail investors pivoted, in many cases, from individual stocks to owning funds, because the funds take mm -hmm. care of all that stuff for you. You know, the pushback has been because, um, in, in particular, a couple of uh, large investors have, you could argue, put their own personal stamp um, on, you know, how votes are going to be done. I think that's a very dangerous thing as well. Um, you know, one of the things we try to really... Um, inculcated Vanguard was it's not our money. You know, so you asked before how big we were, you know, I think Vanguard today runs about seven and a half trillion dollars and it is other people's money. And so, and we know what the profile of these investors looks like. You know, it's a very diverse group of people, it's 30 million families investing in Vanguard. But for the most part, they're very long-term oriented when you look at average holding periods. So our number one thing is we've got shareholders who want long-term value creation and Everything we do has to be in support of that. 
And um, it's a pretty simple philosophy. It can be hard to apply in specific situations, but it, you know, I think with that kind of guidepost, you're going to get it right more than you're going to get it wrong. And frankly, I, you know, I'm glad we're, we're we're doing the voting there. If we had to pass that down to the 30 million people, I think a lot. I, by the way, what will happen from a practical standpoint is people won't vote. Right. And if and then you're going to have do you have mirror voting? You know, how, how does that all work? Or do you just never have a quorum? So nothing ever gets done. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of issues out there. I, I, I do think it's really important for in, investment firms to remember that it's not their money. If you've got your own capital at risk, knock yourself out with whatever your personal views are. But if you don't, it should be, what are you doing on behalf of your investors? So again, the sophisticated guys, if you want to pass it down to them, great. Um, but for the unsophisticated, lay out your principles and those retail investors, uh, for the most part, 401k investors, they're going to either pick your funds or not pick your funds. And some of it will be around how you say you're going to govern. Yeah. Now that's, that's really important. Finally, ESG, right? Environmental social governance has become a big topic in uh, governance circles. And and you have a specific a chapter at the end of the book where you say, look, we, we didn't talk about ESG in the book. And and can you tell us what are your views here? And, and a little bit, the reaction I have as well is maybe in the last six months, there's been a big anti-ESG push. And that's become very politicized. We've seen uh, pensions, uh, sorry, we've seen states that are kind of red states, uh, divest from asset managers. Why don't you tell us your thoughts on ESG as a category? Uh, some say there's $35 trillion of ESG assets under management. Maybe it's going to increase to $40 trillion. You know, how do we define that? And, and what are your thoughts in terms of governance? Yeah, so, you know, to me, um, they're, they're, I'm going to give you both a I'll give you both sides of the argument, all right? Um, okay. So the cynical view of ESG is, is twofold. Um, one, governments completely failed on some really big macro issues that are long-term in, in, in coming. And people in their frustration are looking for who, who else can influence this. And you know the institutions that people trust the most today, according to the Edelman Trust Barometer, are corporations, actually. You know, people entrust their employers. So they want... If, if the employer doesn't get it right, um, nobody else is going to get it right. Government's certainly very low on the trust list, as are a lot of other traditional institutions. So um, there's a, there's a, there is a view out there that nobody else is solving this, so corporations have to solve it. The other sort of uh, view is from an investor perspective, traditional active managers and even some index managers you know the, the 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 race to zero in 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 investment fees is pretty pronounced, and this is a way to push back on that. So if I'm a traditional active manager, I no longer have to be compared to the Vanguard total stock market portfolio because I don't own that. I, that's not my universe anymore. I've eliminated all these companies. So, you know, just am, are you happy with me in terms of who I'm excluding in your portfolio? And in a sense, performance becomes less important. Now, I, again, I. I I recognize this sounds like a very cynical perspective, but mm -hmm. you know when some providers are making five, six, ten times the revenue on ESG product versus a straight beta, straight you know pure market index, 
and the cost differential in terms of running those is certainly not 10x. Um, you, you know, you do, you, you, it does raise question marks. So I can see where there's pushback um, mm-hmm. from, and again, it's become overly politicized to your earlier observation, but you can actually see there's a, there, there's not, a, it's not completely illogical. The flip side, though, is um, this whole multi-stakeholder thing, because I think ESG is just a subset of this whole stakeholder versus shareholder. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's never been versus. Um, you know, I, you go back and you read Friedman. You're, you're way more knowledgeable about this than I am probably. <laughs> but, you know, you go back and you look at Friedman. And Friedman didn't stay shareholder only. He, he mm-hmm. talked about the importance of shareholder return because they're providing the capital. But he talked about the need to take care of your customers. You got to have good employees. If you're going to have good employees, you got to have you know robust communities. And this is not rocket science. Like you know, to me, taking care of your other stakeholders in order to drive shareholder return is pretty logical. It's actually how we ran our company. It's how many of I think great long-term companies run themselves. And what it really gets down to is what's your time frame, right? So, and it's it's if you're really trying to create long-term value, then these other stakeholders, if you will, matter in terms of the ability to create long-term shareholder uh, value. So for us, the way I've thought about ESG is it's a subset of that. I think some of the specifics are, uh, you know, I'm, I, I think, that the, again, they have become kind of political footballs and people are trying to make a point. But if you think about sustainability broadly, it's really t- tied to long-termism. And to me, the way you have to think about this is um, if you're a company and, and you look at ESG issues as this like little separate check the box, like Sarbanes-Oxley compliance or whatever, mm-hmm. it's not a good thing. Like that's not going to mm-hmm. add, that's not going to do anything for the planet, nor is it going to do anything for people and investments um, in particular. On the other hand, if it's, if, if the way you think about some of these issues is integrated with your overall strategy, then you're going to maybe make progress on, you'll you'll create long-term value and you'll do it by taking care of these other stakeholders represented by some of these, these uh, concepts. Um, You know, when I look at the G, I actually think there's been a lot of good work because of that. S is a really broad category. And, you know, again, people are, are, are picking their issues, but at the end of the day, if you think about the S being focused on, we want to have great people and we want everybody to have great opportunities. It's hard to argue with that if you're a business, if you're really, you know, especially today's yeah. labor market, right? You know, the E is probably the toughest one because it's so specific right now around, um, you know, these, these very specific climate goals. And again, I, I do happen to think this is just a reaction to the fact that the government haven't been able to come to any kind of agreement. So there's a lot of pressure there. I'm a little more skeptical that companies can actually move the dial there as much. And, you know, some of the, you know, I'm looking at some of these SEC proposals and you're like, I don't know how you do that, actually. Like, you know, scope three for, um, you know, some of the climate accord stuff. It's really difficult to do. And I'm not sure it's going to move. By the way, I'm not sure it's going to get us to a healthier climate. Um, And it's going to be really difficult for companies to manage their business accordingly. The flip side, and, and again, you want to be positive about it, it's 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 raising the issue up so that if you don't like how it's being done this way, then let's come up with some better ideas. Yeah. 
No, it's it's really interesting, and I know we, we could be talking hours and hours yeah. on on all, all governance things. So let's finish up with uh, some rapid fire questions. What are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? Whoa! So I'm going to give you three, and they're very different categories. Okay. So the first, and, and this is not in order. Um, this is just um, first one was the Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. My dad gave me a very special edition of this when I turned 18. And, you know, I think the rugged individualism was what he was trying to promote. Um, and he was actually uh, reflecting, I think that's how I was sort of heading as an individual. And so he thought this book would be really powerful. And it was. And it's still one of my prized possessions. Um, when I had to do uh, his memorial service, I went right to it to pull some quotes out um, because it, it, it's that important to me. You know, the second, probably the most iconic um, work of fiction that really just did so much for me as a kid and uh, continues to is The Odyssey by Homer. Mm. I know that sounds weird, but you got to remember, I started life out as a classics teacher right. um, <laughs> uh, out of college. And, you know, I just think it's arguably the greatest work of literature ever. And it's the basis for so many other things. Um what edition do you recommend on that one? You know, I like Richard Lattimore's the best, but um, there are a couple mm -hmm. others uh, that have come. I think you know, Fitzgerald, a guy named Fitzgerald has one, and there's a newer one translation that I haven't read that's supposed to be really good, um, but I know Lattimore okay. was the one I sort of grew up with. And then the third one's a lot narrower, um, but I was thinking about what book have I handed out the most in the last decade? Mm and it's actually mindset by carol dweck on um, the oh wow the stanford I love that book. the stanford yep. um, psychologist and she's the one who really did the whole seminal work on fixed mindset versus growth mindset and i'm completely convinced that she has this right and that a, you know the presence of a growth mindset is the single most important factor uh, in terms of your own individual success both professionally, but also as a person. Um, and I just... I can't agree with you more. I love that book and I also give it a lot. And I think it's such an important work. Well, let me tell you a funny story. I'm sorry to digress. I know this is rapid fire, <laughs> but this is such a cool thing. So um, I also happen to know, because I teach at Penn occasionally, Angela Duckworth, who wrote the book Grit. And there's a real uh -huh. linkage between grit slash resilience and growth mindset. Um, they're very interrelated. And when I first met Angela, she said, well, what got you interested in my book? Well, I said, well, I, I was really drawn by the linkage between your work and Carol Dweck's. And she smiled and said, well, you know, Dweck's one of her major influences. And two weeks later, I got a copy of Carol Dweck's mindset autographed by Carol Dweck, oh, nice. basically saying, I hear you like my book, you know, thank you. And <laughs> it was such a cool thing. So um, I love that book. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I also do. Okay, who were your mentors and what did you learn from them? Again, you know, I've been very blessed. I had, I've had i had dozens of great mentors, but there were three who really jumped mm -hmm. out. So one was um, my rowing coach after college. So he, I was his assistant coaching a high school and university level uh, rowers, but I also rowed for him as part of an elite program. And, you know, the big thing with him was he just demanded excellence in everything you did. I mean, he just kept setting the bar higher and higher. And, you know, he he's actually the reason I took the job at Vanguard. He's the reason I 
um, came back to Philadelphia in, in a lot of ways. I mean, his advice was so important to me, but that demanding excellence was really key. Second was my um, my second boss at Vanguard was a guy named Jim Gately, who a lot of people wouldn't know his name, but he was um, he ran our institutional business. And Jack Brennan, who told me, you're going to go work for this guy, Gately. We just hired him. He's going to try to turn around the 401k business. I don't know what your job is. Follow him around. Learn as much as you can. Do whatever he says. That was my my job description. And it turned out to be the best job. I, I got to do so many different things. He taught me how to be a professional, especially on the client side. And um, it was sort of a gift uh, because we talked about it a lot, about the importance of being client-owned. But Jim really impressed us all with what's that mean from a practical day-to-day, how you lead your life, how you lead your professional life. And then the third mentor, um, I, I would be completely remiss not to mention uh, Jack Brennan, um, our second CEO. You know, I, I interviewed with Jack my first day. He always was sort of a guiding hand in my career. And he, I mean, Jack wrote the book on Vanguard leadership principles that we all follow. And uh, he was a big, high-performing team guy. But I think for me, the biggest thing that Jack provided, because um, I had some of that in my own background, he really fostered the idea that being different in the marketplace or contrarian was not a bad thing. He was all about mm-hmm. strategy being a differentiated position as opposed to a race to an ideal position. And so when Vanguard would zig when everybody else was zagging and it got very uncomfortable for people, Jack, just, it just, you know, for him, it was like breathing and he made it that way for the rest of us. So as we pursued strategic ideas that everybody else thought were crazy. Um, I always had the confidence that Jack was sort of looking over our shoulders somewhere and uh, <laughs> saying being different is not a bad thing. So those three people were just amazing. Um, and, and again, I've got dozens more, but they, they stood out. Okay, excellent. Are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? Well, I'd like to think I, I live it by a, a bunch of different things, but um, in my gym... I actually have the last two lines of Invictus um, as the motto to the gym, which is, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And uh, I actually think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, it's you've got to take accountability for your actions. And um, one of the things I loved about that poem and uh, everybody who enters the gym, we want them to have that mentality. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. Uh, what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? So um, I think people would be completely shocked that I have been a subscriber to Analog, Asimov's, and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction for 50 years. Um, I, and I still get the paper versions of those magazines. I don't always get through all of them. But I've been a huge reader of science fiction since I was, you know, 13, 14 years old. And uh, I still support it. Still support it. <laughs> That's great. Okay, final question. Which living person do you most admire? You know, this was the one I could not come up with an answer <laughs> to. Um, you know, because there's so many different people in so many different walks of life. And, you know, I've had the privilege of meeting so many different folks and, you know, whether it's Warren Buffett on the business side, I mean, he is everything he's cracked up to be or 
you know, the former prime minister of uh, the UK, Tony Blair, I had a chance to interview him on stage or Condoleezza Rice, maybe my favorite interview ever. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've just lived this very blessed life where I've met a lot of these folks. Um, but th- th- there are three right there that are pretty high on my list. Yeah. Well, this was great. Bill, thank you so much uh, for your time and for talking to me about your book and uh, corporate governance and your career. Uh, this was excellent. And maybe sometime if you come out in San Francisco, we'll have the chance to meet. But this was excellent. Thanks again. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.